Hello, and welcome to Sean Keaveney's Not So Simple, the podcast collaboration between myself and the smart thinkers of Pan Macmillan. I've been involved in a Guinness World Record attempt to become the world's oldest man for 45 years now. It's going pretty well so far. The officials were a bit worried last week when I got a severe case of man flu, but I just survived. So with that in mind, my guest today is Dr. Michael Greger, author of the best-selling book, How Not to Die. Michael Greger, MD, is a physician, best-selling author and internationally recognised speaker on nutrition, food safety and public health issues. He runs the popular website nutritionfacts.org, is a non-profit, science-based public service providing free daily videos and articles on the latest in nutrition research. Dr Greger also proudly serves as the Director of Public Health and Animal Agriculture at the Humane Society of the United States. In How Not to Die, Michael provides simple yet clinically proven nutritional advice to beat the most common diseases and live longer. With that in mind, here's an exclusive extract from the How Not to Die handbook. It all started with my grandmother. I was only a kid when the doctor sent her home in a wheelchair to die. Diagnosed with end-stage heart disease, she'd already had so many bypass operations that the surgeons essentially ran out of plumbing. The scarring from each open-heart surgery had made the next more difficult until they finally ran out of options. Confined to a wheelchair with crushing chest pain, her doctors told her that there was nothing more they could do. Her life was over at age 65. I think what sparks many kids to want to become doctors when they grow up is watching a beloved relative become ill or even die, but for me, it was watching my grandma get better. Soon after she was discharged from the hospital to spend her last days at home, a segment aired on 60 Minutes about Nathan Pritikin, an early lifestyle medicine pioneer who had been gaining a reputation for reversing terminal heart disease. He had just opened a new center in California, and my grandmother, in desperation, somehow made the cross-country trek to become one of his first patients. This was a live-in program where everyone was placed on a plant-based diet and then started on a graded exercise regimen. They wheeled my grandmother in, and she walked out. I'll never forget that. She was even featured in Pritikin's biography, Pritikin, the man who healed America's heart. My grandmother was described as one of the death's door people in the book. Here's the quote. Francis Greger from North Miami, Florida, arrived in Santa Barbara at one of Pritikin's early sessions in a wheelchair. Mrs. Greger had heart disease, angina, and claudication. Her condition was so bad she could no longer walk without great pain in her chest and legs. Within three weeks, though, she was not only out of her wheelchair, but was walking 10 miles a day. When I was a kid, that's all that mattered. I got to play with Grandma again, but over the years... I grew to understand the significance of what had happened. At that time, the medical profession didn't even think it was possible to reverse heart disease. Drugs were given to try to slow the progression, and surgery was performed to circumvent clogged arteries to try to relieve symptoms. But the disease was expected to get worse and worse until you die. Now, however, we know that as soon as we stop eating an artery-clogging diet, our bodies can start healing themselves, in many ways opening up arteries without drugs, without surgery. My grandma was given her medical death sentence at age 65. Thanks to a healthy diet and lifestyle, she was able to enjoy another 31 years on this earth 
with her six grandchildren, including me. The woman who was once told by her doctor she only had weeks to live didn't die until she was 96 years old. Her near miraculous recovery not only inspired one of those grandkids to pursue a career in medicine, but granted her enough healthy years to see him graduate from medical school. By the time I became a doctor, giants like Dean Ornish, MD, president and founder of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute, had already proven beyond a shadow of the doubt what Pritikin had shown to be true. Using the latest high-tech advances, cardiac PET scans, quantitative coronary arteriography, and radionucleotide ventriculography, Dr. Ornish and his colleagues showed that the lowest-tech approach, diet and lifestyle, can undeniably reverse heart disease, our leading killer. Dr. Ornish and his colleagues' studies were published in some of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, yet medical practice hardly changed. Why? Why were doctors still prescribing drugs and using rotorooter-type procedures to just treat the symptoms of heart disease and to try to forestall what they chose to believe was the inevitable in early death? This was my wake-up call. I opened my eyes to the depressing fact that there are other forces at work in medicine besides science. The U.S. healthcare system runs on a fee-for-service model in which doctors get paid for the pills and procedures they prescribe, rewarding quantity over quality. We don't get reimbursed for time spent counseling our patients about the benefits of healthy eating. If doctors were instead paid for performance, there'd be a financial incentive to treat the lifestyle causes of disease. Until the model of reimbursement changes, I unfortunately don't expect great changes in medical care or medical education. Only a quarter of medical schools appear to offer a single dedicated course on nutrition. During my first interview for medical school at Cornell University, I remember the interviewer emphatically stating, quote, nutrition is superfluous to human health. And he was a pediatrician. I knew I was in for a long road ahead. Come to think of it, I think the only medical professional who ever asked me about a family member's diet was our veterinarian. I was honored to be accepted by 19 medical schools. I chose Tufts because they boasted the most nutrition training, 21 hours worth, although that's still less than 1% of the curriculum. During my medical training, I was offered countless steak dinners and fancy perks by big pharma representatives, but not once did I get a call from Big Broccoli. There's a reason you hear about the latest drugs on television. Huge corporate budgets drive their promotion. The same reason you'll probably never see a commercial for sweet potatoes is the same reason breakthroughs on the power of foods to affect your health and longevity may never make it to the public. There's little profit motive. In medical school, even with our paltry 21 hours of nutrition training, there was no mention of using diet to treat chronic disease, let alone reverse it. I was only aware of this body of work because of my family's personal story. The question that haunted me during training was this. If the cure to our number one killer could get lost down the rabbit hole, what else might be buried in the medical literature? I made it my life's mission to find out.
Most of my years in Boston were spent scouring the dusty stacks in the basement of Harvard's Countway Library of Medicine. I started practicing medicine, but no matter how many patients I saw in the clinic every day, even when I was able to change the lives of entire families at a time, I knew it was just a drop in the bucket. So I went on the road. With the help of the American Medical Student Association, my goal was to speak at every medical school in the country every two years to influence an entire generation of new doctors. I didn't want another doctor to graduate without this tool, the power of food, in her or his toolbox. If my grandma didn't have to die from heart disease, perhaps no one's grandparent did. There were periods where I was giving 40 talks a month. I'd roll into town to give a breakfast talk at a rotary club, uh, give a presentation at a medical school over lunch, and then speak to a community group in the evening. I was living out of my car, one key on my keychain. I ended up giving more than a thousand presentations around the world. Not surprisingly, life on the road was not sustainable. I lost a marriage over it. With more speaking requests than I could accept, I started putting all my annual research findings into a DVD series, Latest in Clinical Nutrition. It's hard to believe I'm almost up to volume 30 now. Every penny I receive from those DVDs then and now goes directly to charity, as does the money from my speaking engagements and book sales, including the audiobook you're listening to right now. As corrupting an influence as money is in medicine, it appears to me even worse in the field of nutrition, where it seems everyone has his or her own brand of snake oil supplement or wonder gadget, dogmas are entrenched, and data too often cherry-picked to support preconceived notions. True, I have biases of my own to rein in. Although my original motivation was health, over the years I've grown into quite the animal lover. Three cats and a dog run our household and I've spent much of my professional life proudly serving the Humane Society of the United States as the charity's public health director. So, like many people, I care about the welfare of the animals we eat, but first and foremost, I am a physician. My primary duty has always been to care for my patients, to accurately provide the best available balance of evidence. In the clinic, I could reach hundreds, on the road, thousands, but this life-or-death information needed to reach millions. Enter Jesse Rash, a Canadian philanthropist who shared my vision of making evidence-based nutrition freely accessible and available to all. The foundation he and his wife Julie set up put all my work online. Thus, nutritionfacts.org was born. I can now reach more people while working from home in my pajamas than I ever could when I was traveling the world. Now a self-sustaining nonprofit organization itself, nutritionfacts.org has more than a thousand bite-sized videos on nearly every conceivable nutrition topic, and I post new videos and articles every day. Everything on the website is free for all, for all time. There's no ads, no corporate sponsorship. It's just a labor of love. When I started this work more than a decade ago, I thought the answer was to train the trainers, educate the profession. But with the democratization of information, doctors no longer hold a monopoly as gatekeepers of knowledge about health. When it comes to safe, simple lifestyle prescriptions, I'm realizing it may be more effective to empower individuals directly. In a recent national survey of doctor office visits, only about one in five smokers were told to quit. Just as you don't have to wait for your physician to tell you to stop smoking, 
you don't have to wait to start eating healthier. Then together we can show my medical colleagues the true power of healthy living. Today I live within biking distance of the National Library of Medicine, the largest medical library in the world. Last year alone there were more than 24,000 papers published in the medical literature on nutrition. I now have a team of researchers, a wonderful staff, and an army of volunteers who help me dig through the mountains of new information. This book is not just another platform through which I can share my findings, but a long-awaited opportunity to share practical advice on how to put this life-changing, life-saving science into practice in our daily lives. I think my grandma would be proud. Hello, Michael. Hello, so glad to be here. Thank you very much for doing this. Now, this is not so much a diet book as a not-to-die book, uh, essentially, isn't it? Now, first things first, uh, what the hell is Oprah's meat defamation trial? <laughs> yeah, Oprah Winfrey was sued um, uh, by a cattle rancher in Texas, 21 states, um, here in the States have uh, so-called food disparagement laws where it is illegal to make unfounded comments against perishable food items. And uh, she, on her show, after learning that they were feeding cows to cows in this country, uh, the UK will be uh, no uh, stranger to the BSE story, mm -hmm. um, uh, said, well, she's never going to eat another burger again in the next week. Cattle futures tumbled on the, uh, on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And uh, Texas cattle rancher lost a lot of money and sued her for making, for daring to say she's not going to eat burgers again. Um, uh, but again, the law is uh, against making unfounded comments. And so my role in the lawsuit was to show that, no, these were indeed founded comments, that we were indeed feeding uh, livestock trimmings to other livestock. And thankfully, she won after eight years of appeals. Uh, but it just goes to show, but in, in a, in a re very real sense, um, she lost in that um, she spent millions of dollars. And if you can drag one of the richest, most powerful people through the courts um, for eight years, tie them up, um, what that does is send a very strong signal, a very gagging kind of s a symbol that uh, um, uh, one may want to, journalists may want to think twice before uh, taking mm. on these very powerful industries. Well, that, I'm going to jump forward to that, actually, because the, yeah. talking about the food industry, because the, these guys are in control of our dopamine receptors in, in a pretty colossal way, aren't they? And this is something that you, you tackle in the book. I believe you kind of describe them as drug lords. And uh, to some extent, these refined sugars and the fats that, that many uh, pleasure foods uh, uh, have it at their center is part of the major problem that you're trying to tackle, isn't it? Absolutely. Fat, sugar, and salt. I mean, that's how the industry, these are dirt cheap ingredients. Um, and they are designed um, uh, by Mother Nature to, um, to tap into the kind of pleasure centers in our brain, which makes absolutely sense. Most of our uh, time on this earth as a species has been in a uh, state of uh, relative um, a famine. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, we uh, we evolved to desperately seek out sources, uh, highly concentrated caloric sources such as uh, fat and sweet, 
Um, and then, of course, there weren't salt shakers around, right? We had to get salt from somewhere. So we developed these tastes to drive us to these foods. Now, back then, I mean, what was sweet? Fruit, healthy food, sweet potatoes. Now, um, uh, the uh, food industry found a way to kind of hijack our natural um, healthy urges to eat um, some of the uh, junk that they put uh, put in front of us. Now, this is not done out of some, you know, uh, villainous, you know, they're not, you know, the, 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 the soft drink companies of the world, you know, aren't out to make uh, kids fat, but it's just that's where the profit is, right? These are dirt cheap ingredients for a few pennies, um, uh, particularly if the sugar industry is subsidized like it is here in the States, um, and you can sell for a few bucks a bottle. And so, I mean, you just can't make as much money selling produce, for example, right? Produce is perishable, right? That uh, Twinkie can sit on your shelf for weeks without going bad. But unfortunately, the same can't be said for broccoli. And so there's just – there's no markup. There's no branding. I mean, you can't – even broccoli growers aren't going to put an ad on TV for <laughs> broccoli because you'll just buy their competitors' broccoli, right? I mean, it doesn't even – it doesn't yeah. – it's just the system is set up to reward um, the shareholders of companies that are selling junk, unfortunately. Um, and uh, well, one has to think about the kind of externalized cost to society, the healthcare costs, not to mention the human suffering costs yeah. and, and well, this of is uh, the food system. Well, because we've gone from undernourished to overnourished, haven't we? And that, that is that kind of reflected in... Um, you know, the sort of uh, financial status of people as well in general, that if you're the poorer sort of sector of society in general, these foods are more heavily marketed to you. And, you know, you, they, it tends to be something that you consume more and it makes you more more ill. We have certainly, we are now dying of diseases of excess. In fact, even worldwide now, chronic diseases have overtaken um, uh, uh, these, you know, starvation diseases like, uh, like, uh, you know, diarrheal deaths among young children. I mean, uh, you know, you can look at the, you can look at the portrait gallery there and look at the, at the, at the, at the royalty in the UK as they get fatter and fatter, <laughs> um, kind of, um, uh, through the centuries. Um, I mean, you know, it used to be where these were diseases of Kings gout and, you know, obesity, and, you know, type 2 diabetes. I mean, these were, you know, but uh, now, you know, you can eat like a, you know, prince for breakfast, a <laughs> queen for lunch and a king for dinner. I mean, you can just, we just, we, you know, these ho feast foods, these holiday foods are now day-to-day -day fare mm. for many people. And uh, so we're dying of the same, you know, these kind of diseases of royalty. Uh, but the good news is, is that we have tremendous power. Over our health, destiny, and longevity, the vast majority of premature death and disability is preventable with a more plant-based diet and other healthy lifestyle behaviors. Well, this is another thing that's surprising. I love this phrase that comes up, a doctor a day keeps the apples away. And I think a lot of people are going to be surprised <laughs> by what you say in the book, which is a big portion of the book deals with the medical establishment. Uh, you, you went into medicine, of course, but one of your quotes is, we don't get paid for the time spent counseling our patients on the benefits of healthy eating. And uh, doctor-related deaths uh, is one of the top five ways that people can die in America. Could you explain a little bit about that, about how, you know, we, we're so reliant on medication, but it's not necessarily doing us any good? 
Yeah, you know, doctors have a severe nutrition deficiency in education. Most doctors just never taught about the impact healthy nutrition can have on the course of illness. So they graduate without this powerful tool in this medical, in their kind of medical toolbox. So a lot of this is just ignorance. They just don't know any better. But there are certainly institutional barriers, time constraints uh, here in the States, is lack of reimbursement. Um, uh, of course, drug companies also play a role in influencing medical education and practice. You can ask your, you know, doctor when's the last time they were taken out to dinner by Big mm. Broccoli. It's probably <laughs> been a while. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, so it turns out, so here in the States, about 106,000 Americans die every year from prescription drugs. These are, this is not medication errors, not overdoses. This is just uh, taking drugs as prescribed, um, kills off more than 100,000 Americans every year. Um, and that's not to mention, you know, uh, deaths from, uh, you know, hospital-acquired infections mm. and, and, and uh, you know, and, and mistakes and yeah. uh, medical error and uh, improper surgeries, things like that. Um, and so, um, I mean, but the... the it's the, the the goal should not be to uh, I mean the goal is to avoid doctors not uh, because you're just so healthy you don't need them in the first place I mean that's really um, uh, people overestimate in fact wildly overestimate um, the power of pills and procedures to keep them healthy yeah. for example uh, you know patients you do surveys I believe that cholesterol lowering statin drugs are about twenty times more effective than they actually are in preventing heart attacks right but so no wonder. People continue to rely on drugs to save them, but our leading killers aren't drug deficiencies. Uh, the dirty little secret is that most people surveyed said they would not take many of these drugs, like blood pressure medications, if they knew how little benefit yeah. these products actually offered. Whereas treating the actual cause, you know, by cleaning up our diets, not only safer and cheaper, but can be more effective in preventing, arresting, and reversing are leading cause of death. So it's like it, because we're so reliant as a as a sort of society on what the doctor says and the drug companies say, we could be doing something more holistic that could have a better effect, i.e., diet and, and exercise. Certainly for the leading killer chronic diseases. I mean, there are these are lifestyle diseases, and so the cure is in the pill. The cure um, is to clean up the cause in the first place, get at the root cause, and clean up our lifestyles. Mm -hmm. Now, certainly there are acute uh, conditions, a broken leg, uh, infections, where doctors, you know, can be absolutely life-saving. But about 80% of what doctors see in primary care, um, what GPs are seeing, these are lifestyle diseases. These are diseases uh, that can be prevented, arrested, and sometimes even reversed with that and lifestyle changes. And what? Because a lot of people would would, would pr probably think that so many of the things that we die from are kind of genetic. They're kind of encoded within our DNA. There's not all that much we can do. We can we can tinker about the edges, but if cancer's in our family, there's not much we can do about it. Are you saying that that's kind of not so much the case as we think it is? Yeah, well, unfortunately, you know, bad diets and lifestyles run in families too, right? Or no one runs in the family. That's that, that may be one of the problems. Um, uh, the, I mean, the the reason that we started to think that these chronic diseases uh, were not uh, genetic after all was the fact that disease rates for many of these uh, common killers, like uh, you know, breast cancer, colon cancer, heart disease, diabetes, vary by a hundredfold or more around the world. So there are some 
some populations where people just don't die of heart disease, right? I mean, some of the things that, some of the leading killers, they just don't die of common cancers like breast cancer and colon cancer. Um, and the question is, well, wait a second, what's going on? And then you do these so-called um, uh, immigration studies where you realize it's not just genetics because if someone, for example, moves from Japan to Hawaii, then Hawaii from San Francisco and starts acquiring the lifestyle habits of their uh, of their new country, then they start getting the diseases of the new country. In fact, very rapidly, um, and by the next generation or two, um, uh, you know, a Japanese family moving to to, to California is going to be starting to die of uh, at California rates <laughs> of these diseases. So their stomach cancer rates will drop because they're not eating all this fermented salted um, uh, um, uh, mm. foods, um, but their you know, uh, colon cancer rates, breast cancer rates will shoot a prostate cancer rates, shoot through the roof because they're eating uh, more of kind of a westernized diet. Um, and so, but the, uh, but the final real nail in the coffin or, or the, the unnailing of the mm. coffin um, was the, these reversal studies where um, uh, Dr. Dean Ornish for the first time showed in, uh, in uh, summer of 1990 with his lifestyle heart trial that you can take people with heart disease um, and put them on a kind of plant-based diet followed by populations that do not get heart disease. And their hope is maybe we could slow the disease down, perhaps even stop it. But instead, something miraculous happened. As soon as people stopped eating their artery-clogging diets, their bodies were able to start dissolving some of that plaque away, opening up arteries without drugs, without surgery, suggesting their bodies want to be healthy all along, but were just never given the chance. And, and of course, it's very personal for you because your, your grandmother was, was basically given a death sentence at 65. Wasn't she? she was sent on to die with terrible heart condition, but this basically reversed it and she got another 31 years of life. I mean, wh when is it too late to help yourself? Is it never too late to try and reverse what the damage that might already have been done? It's never too early nor too late to start eating healthy. The problem is that for about half of people that die from heart disease, it was leading one or two killer in Western countries around the world, uh, the, the, the way in which people die, people seem to get a, have a sense of oh, the way you die from heart disease is you get chest pressure and it gets worse and worse and then you can't, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, and then, you know, eventually uh, you have a heart attack. But actually, for a little over half, so most people that die from heart disease actually die from something called sudden cardiac death, which is you, which is defined by you don't even know you have heart disease. You've never been diagnosed with heart disease, but within an hour of your first symptom, like that pressure in their chest radiating to the left arm and jaw, within an hour of symptoms, you're dead. You're gone from this earth. Um, and so, th so uh, that's why an ounce of prevention is worth way more than in a pound of cure because there is no cure for dead. <laughs> That's a pretty good way of putting it. Um, so, okay, then. So, if we're talking about, um, you, you know, telomeres is the thing that comes up because it's that there's little caps at the end of our of our uh, is it nerve endings and things that they start to at unravel at the end of our DNA at the end, end of, of our, our DNA chromosomes right at the end of our chromosomes and th this is the thing that starts to uh, deteriorate with age and, and with, with toxins and things and you've you find over looking at many studies that there are ways that you can sort of get that back to a, a sort of working level again sometimes increase it what kind of things I know this is massively um, reductive because you've, you've written a whole beautiful book about it but to give us the sort of silver bullet of things that what kind of things should we be doing sticking in our smoothies? What kind? I mean, we've mentioned 
the, the, the magic trees of fabulousness, broccoli. Um, what, what, <laughs> what other, what other things should I be sticking in my smoothie to make sure that I make sure I take it on a daily basis? Is it like a an ounce of turmeric? Is it some tomato paste? What kind of things are really useful on a daily basis? Yes, well, uh, yeah, I didn't want uh, the, my book just to be kind of a reference guide. I wanted no. to be practical in terms of translating this amount of data into day-to-day decisions. So what um, the second half of the book is really centered around uh, my uh, recommendations, uh, my so-called daily dozen checklist of all the things I try to fit in my daily routine. So an ounce of turmeric would be way too much turmeric, <laughs> but a quarter <laughs> teaspoon of turmeric all right, um, is what I recommend every day. And so I recommend beans every day, um, berries every day, the healthiest types of fruit. Uh, cruciferous vegetables every day that have these types of vegetables, dark green leafy vegetables, a uh, tablespoon of ground flax seeds. Um, uh, you know, I talk about the best beverages, how much exercise you get every day, all the things, uh, you know, get just to kind of inspire people to try to uh, fit in some of the healthiest foods to c- kind of crowd out some of the less healthy options. And I always, I always thought that I was doing okay with eggs because I thought, oh, eggs are good for you. They're sort of full of protein and they They've proven not to give you immediate heart attacks anymore, but then, then you, you, you don't think that they're particularly good for, especially for men, do you? Oh, well, I mean, it's not, I mean, I have no opinion about anything, but I can tell you what the science very clearly says. Um, and uh, so in terms, so uh, eggs, uh, men with prostate cancer, for example, um, who eat eggs, um, have twice the risk of uh, of uh, dying prematurely, so they have uh, so their survival significantly cut short. Um, egg eaters compared to uh, uh, men who eat less eggs. The same thing was found for poultry consumption. I mean, we we think is going on something called TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, which is kind of the been described as kind of the magic bullet in diet microbiome interactions. Microbiome is our kind of friendly flora in our gut, our friendly bacteria. Um, uh, not so friendly, unfortunately, if we eat eggs and some um, other animal products high in carnitine or choline, so eggs or steak. Um, uh, we foster the growth of these bacteria that can take the carnitine or the choline in, in eggs and, and, and red meat and convert into something called trimethylamine, which is oxidized by the liver, and then circulates throughout our body, increasing our risk, uh, increase of, of, of uh, heart disease, stroke, uh kidney failure, heart failure, um, and may accelerate cancer growth. And so that's why um, uh, the study suggests egg eaters have higher rates of ovarian cancer, higher uh, 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 higher rates of cancer recurrence for people who already have cancer. Um, and so it's not just, yes, has lots of uh, you know cholesterol, um, but this TMAO story is really opening up the whole new um, uh, kind of arena in terms of uh, the effect on our diet. And what's interesting, though, if you take someone who doesn't eat any animal products, like you take a vegan and pay them enough to, to eat a steak or to eat eggs, they actually don't make any trimethylamine because they have not been fostering the growth of these bad bacteria in their guts, so they just don't have these bacteria. Now, if you fed that vegan a steak every single day, eventually mm. um, they'd be able to make this stuff. But um, uh, we want to foster the growth of the good bacteria, the fiber-eating bacteria, the prebiotic-eating bacteria, um, concentrated in whole plant foods such as legumes, beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils. I keep telling people you got to eat like the Brits. You have beans for breakfast. You have the legumes three <laughs> times a day. I love that. Okay, more beans. That's 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 an easily achievable aim, definitely. And um, my com- commercial for broccoli is broccoli, tiny trees of goodness. 
which I think we'll catch on eventually. Um, I love it. Listen, it's been such a great pleasure to chat to you today. It's quite inspiring. Um, you know, the uh, the pizza and the Doritos and the Pepsi, the full-fat Pepsi have gone straight into the bin uh, and have been inspired to eat a little bit healthier and move around a bit more. But How Not to Die by Michael Greger, MD, is out in all good and disreputable bookshops right now. But thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat to us today. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Michael Greger, whose book How Not to Die is available now as a hardback and ebook from all good and disreputable retailers. The audiobook, which you heard a snippet of earlier, is also available to download now from audible.co.uk. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I very much hope you'll join me in taking Michael's advice and staying alive a while longer. I'll also be putting the finishing touches to my own survival guide. Ooh, watch out for that bus. It should be out in the autumn. Goodbye. Also available now is Michael Greger's new book, The How Not to Die Cookbook, a lavish, beautifully illustrated cookbook full of delicious recipes based on the groundbreaking nutritional science of how not to die. The How Not to Die Cookbook, now available from all good and disreputable retailers.